0: This show is supported by CoinKite. If you're still relying on a third party to custody your Bitcoin, you don't have Bitcoin. You have Bitcoin exposure and a promise to pay. To truly own Bitcoin, maintain privacy, and to experience all the benefits of doing so, which I often discuss on this show, you need to be custodying your own Bitcoin. Or as I like to say, have your 12 magic words. This is where CoinKite comes in. They offer an array of products that allow you to easily and securely do just that take full ownership of your Bitcoin. They also appreciate how much Bitcoin has become a part of so many of our lives and continue to develop fun and unique products designed specifically for hardcore Bitcoiners. They've been in business for over 10 years and are definitely a favorite company for many, including myself. If you'd like to learn more, visit CoinKite.com. So we're here to uh, ostensibly discuss the book, When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson um which was actually written in 1975 boom there it is uh mm. obviously a timely book for our current times and i think that's why we decided to put this together because there's a lot of obvious parallels between what happened uh basically in Weimar Germany in the aftermath of the first world war and what's happening now and um so i thought it would be fun to get together with some homies and discuss it so how should we get this kicked off? Do you want to just go kind of first impressions of the book around the table? And presumably that'll spark some lively conversation. Blake, sure. why don't you get us My started book, off?
1: Well, it was a long book. It was repetitive uh, mm-hmm. and it was d- depressing. So <laughs> <anyone else> felt <laughs> that way? Uh, but it felt crucial to read it because there's a lot of parallels, with what's going on. And there's not a lot of books about, when money dies or when money starts to hyperinflate away. And so there's, a, yeah, again, a lot of parallels to what's going on now in society and in areas that are really hyperinflating. And then in the United States as well, which we're slowly inflating away. And you see these, these parallels. So you really need to, history uh, doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And there's a lot of rhyming that's going on and it gives you clarity into what's going to happen. and gives you Peace, because you you do know what's going to happen. You can expect that going on because it's a very repeatable um, mm-hmm. it's a repeatable process where things in society will break down. Um, there's something obviously going to, it's going to be new, which is Bitcoin. So that's going to add mm-hmm. some conversation to this, where we can kind of look <laughs> at these use cases and see you know draw parallels for what's going on. So that that was the kind of the big thing for me is is you know one that was dry. It's a tough read. So this podcast is great for figuring out the parallels. Mm-hmm and then the action items. And, you know, that's what I like to focus on is like, what can we do moving forward? You know, after this call, after this discussion, you know, what what can we take away from an individual perspective and and sharing that with our friends? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my, my takeaway, um, with the book. Mm
0: -hmm. Johnny.
2: Um, yeah. So I just, uh, initial takeaways. I mean, as you read it, you know, the, the idea of like uh, the frog in a boiling pot of water comes to mind. Um, but it also, like, it just, it, you think the frog is done boiling and it just keeps going. And then now it's in, you know, now it's in a you know frying pan and then the oil, then the, the water all evaporates and now it's on fire and then they put it in lava and then they like, <laughs> bombed it with a nuke. I mean, by the end, you're like, is this going to just keep going? And I was shocked, you know, shocking to look at the dates too, because you're talking about months at a time, you know, you're at one point, it's like summer and it's like late summer and then early fall you're talking about weeks months at a time these things just getting worse and worse and worse and the general just erosion um it just reiterates again something that that i think we've all sort of learned over time is the importance of money so many people don't understand the true importance of money because it's you know we have all these tropes of money's the root of all evil and uh you know the, the rich man um, has as much chance getting to heaven as the camel to the eye of the needle. Like these ideas that money is sort of this evil thing that, that we should avoid, or at least not. Um, I mean, I guess in the end it's misquoted, right? It's the love of money is the root of all evil, but, but still the, the general theme in a lot of parts of culture is like this idea that money is bad uh, or the chase of money is bad. But the reality is when money goes bad, nothing works right? So, and, and that's what I really, the big takeaway from this was, from this book was uh, sort of that foundational erosion underneath you. Um, you know, it's one thing to have it on a personal level. When you're broke, nothing else matters, just similar to like when you're sick, right? So if you're sick, nothing else matters um, except getting healthier. Uh, and just this sort of erosion of money was like a, a, a cancer on this particular culture, but you can see it, you know, it's the same across multitudes of examples across time and history. And, and we're seeing something in that vein now. I you know, is it, is it Weimar Republic? I don't know. Is it 1970 stagflation? Maybe. Um, but again, I think Blake quoted best as history may not repeat, but it definitely rhymes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I would say one of the kind of the uh, uh, takeaways, um, once I was done with the book, I was like, wow, the, you know, the, the narrative reads like, some sort of fantasy, right? Like, so just in, in the, the this insanely fast devaluation of of a currency almost seems impossible to repeat, right? But I think part part of the reason that it seems impossible is because it's it was however many gen- generations ago, no one's alive anymore that actually lived through that, so. Uh, every single one of us on this call and everyone listening, you know, doesn't know anyone that, that, that was an adult at that time, you know what I mean? So, so there's, and I think the book maybe mentioned some of this, right. There's just no, in, in the present day, there's no institutional or, or societal knowledge, like actual cardinal knowledge of, of going through an episode like that. So it seems impossible to us. And uh, to John's point about the, you know, kind of being like frogs in boiling water that's 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 precisely it right we've we feel like we might read a narrative like this and be like oh thank god that was a hundred years ago because that'll never happen again and yet you know it's it's quite likely to happen uh um or to, to to rhyme right so i think the the to me it was kind of fascinating that 20 years from now we might be you know recounting a, a, a similar story you know that our generation uh uh went through so i I would say that that was one of the more kind of surprising and and and, um uh uh, the 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 stronger takeaways for me was just how quickly or how easy it is to 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 disregard this as a story from you know generations ago and and something that will never happen again
0: yeah i um i thought most a lot of it was you know john you said repetitive i thought a lot of it was quite boring because it was it was basically just kind of chronicling the devaluation and I, I like the details of like, what's happening to the culture? What's the thought process? What are like, what is that devaluation causing and, and what's allowing that to occur? You know, cause you, you just read it and you think, oh my God, it's horrible. But you have to understand that for that to have taken place, a sufficient number of people had to have basically not been aware of it or not believed, not been identifying mm-hmm. the proper cause. And that's what they mm-hmm. say in the book, you know, like people thought the cause of the inflation was everything, but. The printing of money. And and we're, from our standpoint now, we're like, how can you, how is that even possible? Like there's a direct line, you know, you print a gajillion marks and you get, you know, you don't print and there's not a gajillion more goods and services in the economy. The price of all those goods and services are going to go up. I mean, what's, what's so difficult about that? And, uh, and there was a bit of that, the, I guess the last couple chapters were a bit more commentary on the thinking that was going on in the time and the prevailing mindset and stuff like that but I think this is why studying these historical episodes is so valuable because history doesn't repeat. And that's, that's the pitfall. That's history. Not repeating is what allows it to rhyme because people look and say, it's not the same thing. It's not the exact mm-hmm. same thing that's going on. And they're right. It's not the exact same thing, but like, you know, so the circumstance is different and the precise mechanism might be different and all that kind of stuff. But what is the principle? You know, like we, when, when like, you know, all the COVID hysteria stuff kicked off. uh, I was reading a book called, uh, they thought they were free, which was a look at kind of the rise of of Hitler in late 20s, early 30s, Germany. And, you know, to the extent that I mentioned that, you know, some people would push back on that. My point, again, wasn't the exact same thing is happening. The point was, which principles? of governance, of morality, of whatever, were violated at that time, and which are being violated at this time, and should they not give us cause for pause about how quickly we move in a certain direction? Because another interesting fact about this is, okay, so war basically ends in, you know, uh, 1819, and, you know, Germany's in a bad position, and they are uh, blamed for the war, and they have war reparations, and this basically puts their economy and society into a tailspin and then 1924 mm-hmm. was the height of the inflation where you know like the mark to us dollar exchange rate was something absurd like a billion or or whatever it, anymore. it Yeah, it's just whatever it ended up being. And so things can happen really fast if you let them if you let them spiral out of control. And so I'm sure we'll talk about all the different uh details of that process but to my mind, that uh that's why a book like this is interesting and important. To because, you know, we're all guilty of it guilty of it. But I think maybe the people on this call and Bitcoiners more generally, if I can be so bold as to assert that they're perhaps more thoughtful than your average person, at least in the domain of you know, finance and economics and stuff. And a lot of us just kind of take we can Our brains connect dots far too easily. And unless we use precedent and prior examples of similar circumstances and try to extract out the insights and principles that prevail in those circumstances and then ap- apply them to the current one and see if there's any parallels, if we don't do that, I think this is how we continue to fall into the same pitfalls. Now, I have, I'm under no illusions that this conversation is going to... Uh, you know, avoid the fate that we seem to be barreling towards, but obviously Bitcoin has provide, you know, represents an opportunity that wasn't available to anyone ever in these circumstances that now is. And of course, many of us and many people around the world are taking advantage of that. And that's amazing. And that, you know, that makes it really interesting to speculate, like, how does this play out differently? Because that's available, you know, because opting out is so much, so much easier than it's ever been before in the past you know and mm-hmm. i think that does mean that the character of this phenomenon what however it's going to play out will be quite different than those in the past how you know I, we can discuss and i'd love to get your guys opinion but the other thing that i did just my last uh, my last point on this the other thing mm-hmm. i did i read the book i can't even remember the period now which is embarrassing but i read the book like 3 years ago but it was the um, the assignat like the the fiat currency inflation in france I believe it was like around the revolution, maybe just prior, Um, Mm -hmm. and a very, you know, very similar thing played out. Right. Ultimately, the government just issued a bunch more paper because, you know, they they wanted to spend more money and they issued way more paper and it got out of control Um, and some commentary and some uh, context for Weimar culturally. And you know that's what's I think the most interesting parallel because in the book it touches on it, and then if you explore it a bit further, you had this you know incredibly tumultuous period in the early twenties where the bulk of this inflation was happening, and people were destitute, and there was a tremendous amount of volatility in all areas of life, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, a tremendous amount of conflict and polarization, and then in that time and in the latter part of uh, the twenties, you had this like real interesting cultural emergence where you had people like, and and really entrenched aspects of all this, you know? And I think there's parallels to that today where you had the people that were like, no, let's, we want to go back to the traditional way. That was the safe and stable way that, you know, we that we lost as a result of the war and the inflation. And then you had this, you know, more modernist uh, group of people. And there was this like flourishing of modern mm-hmm you know flourishing maybe you know is a little bit too subjective, but there was a there was a lot more of like modern art and modern dance and modern literature and like this kind of explosion of culture around the world, of course during the 20s, but in Germany especially. And uh, it's just interesting that like that came out of one of the most tumultuous and and destructive financial and economic periods within a couple of years. you know so these these the, the change that occurred in that decade was tremendous. And then of course, what that led to was the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, which was a, a massive departure from the kind of extremely liberal culture of the late twenties, you know? So again, I, that was kind of long-winded, but just to say like a very interesting period of history. And um, I think one that probably has no greater parallel than, than the one today for those reasons mentioned and many others that I'm sure we'll
1: get into. Well, I think like, First thing that comes to mind is, as you know, you were talking about, ho- hopefully it's different this time, yeah, uh, you know, with Bitcoin being an option. But the thing that it was interesting for me, one of the takeaways is like, maybe it's not different this time. I was I was reading the book and I'm like, I'm sure there is some gold bug that's sitting there being like, we just need to use gold. That's it. It's not it's not that big a deal. We're going to use gold. And through that whole book, it's surprising to me that nobody was just like, how about we just trade in gold? You know what I mean? I'll use, you know, whatever that that meme of exchanges, but everyone kept going back to John's point, that boiling frog mindset. They just kept using that particular currency and not trying to to move to something else. Uh, a gold being the most obvious one And Bitcoin would be a lot easier to use and a lot easier to exchange. Um, but it was interesting that that didn't happen and there wasn't conversations that I remember from that book that where people were talking about moving to a gold standard and exchanging in gold, especially at the business level, you know, maybe not at the individual level to buy your coffee, but you know, businesses that are dealing internationally, not moving to a gold standard. I found surprising, um, especially since it was such common conversation where you're trading in your gold for, um, for local currencies as a badge of honor, uh, and pride, nationalistic pride. Uh, and that—that's me. I, I, yeah, I, man, I, I no. found that surprising. And they're wearing, you know, gold rings and gold jewelry, and, and talking about their gold, and they—they they just never—it never clicked for them. Just like maybe we're just using the wrong thing, and so they just kept using the wrong thing over and over and over again. Which the modern parallel is concerning for me because. You know, I thought like once inflation hits, it's going to slap everybody in the face once and then they're going to look at Bitcoin and say, "Okay, it's time to do my research about this. Those Bitcoin those crazy Bitcoiners on Twitter are right. Uh, Let's let's dialogue about this. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Now, the bond market seems to be breaking in in Europe. We've got hyperinflation uh, or inflation in Europe, in the UK, in Lebanon, in Argentina and a lot of other countries, Turkey. And it doesn't seem to I was in Turkey about eight months ago and it didn't seem people weren't didn't seem to be waking up to that where you thought they'd be begging to understand about Bitcoin uh, and sound money. They were still thinking it was a volatile asset, um, which obviously it is. But, you know, there was there wasn't much more curiosity that you thought you think that would, you know, they have like triple or quadruple inflation that the United States has and they'd be a little bit more curious. And it didn't correlate as much as I thought with high inflation. And curiosity around Bitcoin.
3: Yeah, Blake, I think um, that's interesting uh, you say that because I, I think in terms of finding parallels between that period, you know, the period of Weimar Germany and, and today, um, you know, I think the book highlights how, uh, uh, of course, that the overwhelming majority of the population is just too busy trying to put food on the table and going to work and just give me my, give me my, you know, money at the end of the work week um, and have no assets, right? So they did. They, they, they began with no assets. Uh, uh, and similarly today, you know, the overwhelming majority of our world is too busy at work, you know, give me my paycheck at the end of the week, have no assets to transfer out of, in, in Weimar Germany, it was wealthy people transferring their assets out of the country to protect their, protect them today. Perhaps it's, it's it's folks who have studied bitcoin and understanding sound money principles you know starting to 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 save in bitcoin uh but i think that to 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 speak to parallels probably a similar thing is going to happen you know this this you know during this century right where uh, a a Overwhelming majority of folks just will not educate themselves. All right, um, either because they think they can't, uh, it's too complicated, or whatever it might be, but they're just going to faithfully go to work and give me my paycheck at the end of the work week, um, b- completely blind to the you know the 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 debasement of that money that that's, that's happening under their nose. But it's, yeah, it's not
2: just it's not just um, you know they're not educating or or even back in Weimar like you know it's Gresham's law right bad money chased out good money. Um, uh, people are going to get rid of and use bad money and hold on to, or try to store good money. So, and money in this case could mean gold, but it also like in this, in this book, you know, we talk about farmers, if you have saleable goods, they, that was their money, right? That was their store value because you couldn't I mean, getting access to gold may or may not have been easy for people in general. Um, but if you lived in the country and you had real estate or you had, you know uh if you had farmland and you had something you could produce on your land that was your real of value where the people you know it was, it was like this um you know I, I always think of russia um when you think about the collapse of you know communist russia and what happened to the urban you know quote-unquote urban jobs and, and a lot of that is is in this book right like urban jobs are supported when the basic needs are taken care of. Right. When you can put food on the table easily, when you trade your money for food, like we do, right. I live in, I live in, 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 a city. And so I don't have any access to food other than going to the grocery store and being able to purchase it. But if you don't have that ability, then the entire urban idea falls apart. Right. Because until I can provide food, I can't go be a professor. I can't go be, uh, you know, a financial advisor. I can't go be a lot of things. Um, that exist only after that basic foundational support of I can feed myself occurs, and that's what happened in Weimar. Was the basic foundational idea of being able to provide myself with health and safety through the exchange of my government uh, paper completely collapsed, and so the whole urban idea collapsed in that way. And and I and I brought up communist Russia because I, you know, you look at. People were PhDs in communist finance, something that does not exist, right? That like <laughs> the, this entire people went to school for ten years to become a, a communist finance doctor, and then communist Russia falls apart, and that's not a, it doesn't exist. It completely collapses, completely erodes. Um, you know when 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 the basic foundational. Uh, premise of your entire society falls apart because you can't feed yourself, then all of those things that people put their time and energy and money and traded their time, energy, and money for become completely irrelevant. Uh, Which I find, you know, and that's, that's how this, this idea of like, you know, Gresham's law and, Oh, that they just found gold. Well, because of that reparations payment, that's hanging over And, and, and to, to, Talk about dismissing this whole book, right? Somebody who reads this book and wants to say, it'll never happen here. That's what they'll use, right? They'll just say, well, they were under this reparations payment from World War I. And without that, this would have never happened. They would have had more control over their financial destiny and all that stuff. And to an extent, sure, that's true. I mean, that's what we're taught in eighth grade social studies, right? Like World War One happened. These really um, sort of restricting reparations payments were put onto the Germans they couldn't pay them back. That allowed Hitler to come in and World War II happens. World War I happens, yada, yada, yada. You can yada, 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 about 15 years of history in there. And then Hitler and World War II. But and you can look at now and go, well, America's not under a reparations payment. So, you know, we're, we don't have that same struggle. But, okay, what, what could you consider to be a reparations payment that we've put ourselves under? Uh, Social security, um, debt to GDP, global debt uh, exports and, and debt that we have to Chinese. I mean, you name it, you know, and, and you hear guys, uh, on Twitter, Preston and Pish and, um, and, you know, bond markets and, and experts in, in bonds and, and long-term debt, and they're screaming it, right? I uh, think St- Stanley Druckenmiller had a great quote the other day. He was being interviewed and it made its way around. And he said, you know, he was essentially saying, which we've been looking which Anybody paying attention for long a long enough period of time is we're not going to be able to service the debt, right? We're getting to a point where we're not be able to service the debt. And you're talking about Ray Dalio and the end of these massive 250 year debt cycles and uh, some sort of fourth turning, or if you're a Bitcoin or a fifth turning. Um, but he asked him, what are you investing in? And he said, well, I bought some cyanide, you know, like this is the yeah. idea of the boomers, right? Yeah. Like the Uh, The boomer generation is not going to have to live through this for the most part. I mean, they're they're probably going to feel some of the pain, but they got to live relatively unscathed and then we'll have to kind of fight through it. And so the question is, will Bitcoin provide us, you know, nothing's going to save us from the coming financial reorganization of the entire globe, right? But does Bitcoin provide us some safety? Um, And I think, yes, I think and the equivalent in this book, you basically, as a Bitcoiner, get to become a foreign citizen to your own country. Right. So like these Germans, if they could have become French, they would have done it in a heartbeat, right. If they could have saved if they, because it talks about, um, let's see what page I have, on? um, basically, uh, page 23. Yeah. So page 23, it talks about, um, Furniture fittings, pianos, carpets were being bought up wholesale by what were known as gold currency people, the occupying Italians, the British, and the Americans. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think of, you know, African beads uh, and how the British, because they had better technology, were able to just go and make glass beads and essentially conquer the entire continent of Africa. Um, and that was similar in this case. Because they had no other way to save their value, the Italians, the French, they would come in as tourists. They would buy up whatever they wanted for nothing, and then leave with it. And the the Germans had no way to save that. So what did they do? They they had spend it as quickly as possible, just like we see time and time again across, you know, whether you want to look at an African nation or a South American, you know, Argentina or whatever. Um, but in this case, you and I, you know, the four people in this. Uh, room people who are listening bitcoiners in general i get to say i'm essentially giving up my u.s citizenship to go be a bitcoin sovereign individual and i can save mine away from the malfeasance of my financial uh dictators or those who dictate our financial policy mm-hmm. and I just yeah, yeah. No,
0: it's, it's all good points and well said <laughs> i think you know in in these and your point about cities i absolutely true. And so they devolved into at first, you know, barter and stuff, but the, the punchline with cities is that they're premised on reliable coordination. And when the very mechanism of coordination breaks down, the thing that's relying on it breaks down as well. And that's, you know, I, there are many examples of that. Um, but what's so fascinating to me about all this is the psychology involved, you know, so f- for the four of us here and many other Bitcoiners, once we realize the the fraudulent nature or the uh, inevitable collapse or whatever, however you want to characterize it of the, the existing monetary system, we made a decision. Now, some of us, that was in advance of Bitcoin and maybe we became gold bugs because that was the only option. Maybe Bitcoin was around and we could just go into Bitcoin, but it was almost like a, a principled decision. Like this is predicated on uh, unsustainable on an unsustainable foundation or axioms it's going to fail i need a solution i found a solution i'm taking the solution and you know there were people in germany at the time that did that converted all their wealth to a hard asset like gold or precious metals there's people in late 20s early 30s germany when hitler came hitler came to power they got the fuck out immediately you know so like certain people that were paying more attention and maybe even more principally Oriented, so they, you know, they said when someone like Hitler came to power and everything hit, he was espousing, they said, "I'm not about this. This is a, a dangerous road. I'm out." But so, like the majority of people, and they they talk about this in the book, or Adam talks about this in the book. There's so many there's so many reasons for the frog boiling in water. And there's so many reasons why we get these s- scenarios where it's death by a thousand cuts. Cause one, people think it's going to go back to normal. That's like one of the first ones like, Oh, this is a short-term aberration. The political dynamic will go back to normal, the monetary, the economic, everything will revert back to a something I'm, I'm more, you know, uh, used to, and I'm more, that's more acceptable to me. And then there's the case that there's so much, op- so much obfuscation, In the system, like I said before, like they were blaming everything except for uh, the printing of money, right? And they were fudging all the numbers. They say in the book as well that the the CPI, effectively what it was at the time, they were having to uh, fudge in order to make it seem like, uh, you know, things weren't as bad as they were. And so like between all that chaos and all that distortion, I'm sure a lot of people have a difficult time in identifying like not only what is the cause, but what is the appropriate solution? You know, and and then the other thing I, I went through the history, there's a Wikipedia page and it's the chronology of like Weimar, Germany. And it's got like, you know, a bunch of points that are uninteresting. It's like this law was passed and this passed and this passed and this passed and this passed. But to me, it just impressed upon me, like all of this stuff, whether we're talking about hyperinflation, whether we're talking about rise to power of fill in the blank tyrant, there's so many steps that lead up to it and when we look back in hindsight on history we tend to think it's so simple oh bad guy came to power people swallowed the Kool-Aid why didn't they why didn't they see it and it's because like the you know culture is such a dynamic thing and culture kind of possesses us right like we're all possessed with a certain element of you know Perfect. the zeitgeist of the culture if you want to call it that and some of us try to extract ourselves from that. Some of us try to see more clearly. We try to see beyond it or see outside of it because we recognize how, we recognize how dangerous it can be to be fully kind of uh, fully adopt that cultural perspective, like a narrow cultural perspective. Um, But that's, that's one of the things that is lost on people. And, and why I think of course, these, these books and these discussions are important. And the last thing I wanted to say was one of the interesting things that came out of this time in the twenties, was like a dramatic increase in social services and you know social promises and all that kind of stuff by the state and of course right because if when times are really bad if you're the type of person that thinks that the government is the one that's meant to fix those things that's most meant to step in and fix them for you then there's a huge chorus of people asking for it and and so one you think that's my solution not opting out so you're you're over indexing <clears throat> on the former rather than the latter and two you're giving the government more and more reason to engage in the activity that's actually impoverishing impoverishing you in the first place which is the more rampant printing of money in order to fulfill those promises and so you like the whole scenario creates a downward spiral for itself and if you're if you're attached to that if you're aligned with that if that's how you th- where you see your salvation then you're going to go down with the ship you know, and the other option is, is of right. course, not aligning with that, and knowing that you have to save yourself, and then you're going to look for other options. And of course, I'm, you know, there was a, a reasonably there was a lot of people at the time that I'm sure did that, but the majority yeah. of people were part of the going down with the ship group.
3: Yeah, and I think that these the nowadays, you know, uh, in, in in this generation, there's. Um, uh, You know, there's 60, 70 year olds, uh, at least here in in this country in the states, that that are accustomed to, you know, from birth until today, have been, have had some sort of, of to your point, John, um, some sort of subsidy, some sort of support that they've now become, you know, dependent on, right? And and so to take that away. There, there's there, how do you square that circle? If you're that person, if that's the only mindset or if the only experience you've ever had is to have that, you know, government support, then you're going to clamor and you're going to cheer on, you know, the like in California, I think another thousand dollar stimulus check uh, uh, type of thing has just been issued to literally to quote unquote fight inflation. You're going to. You're gonna cheer that on because that's the only thing you've ever, you know, mm-hmm. ex- uh, 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 known, and it's tragic, right? Because this is the the ship going down and and bringing down, you know, an incredible amount of people with it um, that are, you know, probably unwilling to think uh, in different terms.
1: Well, the irony with that is like that the problem, the the money, they're printing printing money to give a check to people, right? And the problem is the printing of money. So it's like right. it's like saying the solution to the Titanic is going and knocking another hole in the in the steel of the ship. Like that's exactly <laughs> right. what's happening. And, and the irony there is that like they're getting people to do it to themselves and getting people yeah. to vote in that in that mindset, which is just the weirdest thing. We're gonna f- fix this by printing more money. We're going to fix inflation by printing more money. Inflation is printing more money. You can't fix it by printing more money. And so that's an amazing statement that you made because there's just such a disconnect between cause and effect that people just refuse to realize for some reason. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is it going to be obviously education and, and studying history, but people don't get that general concept. And for whatever reason, it's not really on the internet. You know, there's not really great content about what is inflation on the internet? Even in the Bitcoin space, my biggest frustration is that everyone defines, continues to talk about inflation as the price of goods going up versus the real definition, which is the fact that money is being printed. We still do that in the Bitcoin space. And a lot of our thought leaders continue to do that. And it, it's my biggest pet peeve, right? Because we continue to talk about it like that matters and we conflate the terms. And so we're still guilty of that. Uh, even now, uh, and, and that's something that like, you know, it, is, it, it helps you understand why it's so hard for people to grasp this, because the powers to be, so to speak, are really good at conflating all these things together. And it, most Bitcoiners would have been able to tell you that inflation is going to happen when they did, you know, $2 trillion of money printing two years ago, and then the prices are going to come up, and now they've just been waiting for that to happen, and now inflation's coming into the um ethos you know people are talking about it more so i just wanted to compliment on that well to give a, a very clear
2: modern day example current modern day example um and you know this goes back to your point blake of like people not being educated or you know we see this through a certain lens because we're paying a lot of attention and because we're bitcoiners and we you know we're very um sensitive to history and and historical examples but the dod department of defense just for the second year, picked certain locales that the real estate, cost of real estate has gone up too much in the last year and have issued a higher cost of living adjustment. So last year it was I think 15 different locations, this year it's 20 different locations. So some people's housing allowance went up now usually goes up every year um in january whatever percent five percent depending on where you're supposed to live it never keeps up with the cost of of living but we just got a you know they they just provided a new uh, increase in october an emergency increase of in some cases 25 to 30 percent increase so I see that and what are my initial thoughts? It's like, well, that's, that's not a good sign. The government's taking emergency measures to increase the pay of government employees so that they can keep up with the cost of housing and cost of living. But every every you know service member that I've spoken to, morale is high. I just got an extra 400 bucks a month. I just got an extra 500 bucks a month, man. I'm, you know, this is great. I'm gonna save some extra money. And to them, it's like, you know, there's no, there's no connecting of those dots of like, well, what does this really mean? Like, and, and, you know, we see it again and again and again in this book, you know, I was just looking at some of the notes that I took, you know, page 38, um, it's got, as government becomes more desperate, it becomes more dictatorial and, you know, you may not see increasing the housing allowance for government employees as dictatorial, but certainly it's the, it's a printing of money. That, that money comes from everybody else. That value doesn't just mm-hmm. create it out of thin air. And so while, you know, we live in our, everybody lives in their own little narrow bubble, ourselves included, you know, I'm, I'm not immune to that and, and nobody else is either. But when you have your blinders get more and more funneled, the harder life gets, um, mm-hmm the more you're, you know, I I, I always use this example. When I was a kid, I used to get sick, right? I'd stay home and watch Wheel of Fortune, right? And I remember like watching Wheel of Fortune and being like, God, if I go and just feel good enough to like spin that wheel, like I would be the happiest, (laughs) right? Like that that was like, you know, that was my only goal was to like be healthy enough again, you know, as a six-year-old watching Wheel of Fortune to like maybe someday I could once again feel good enough to spin that wheel. And that would be, you know, it's so stupid. I remember having that feeling and like anytime you're sick, even now, you know, I, I got COVID a few months ago, and I was, you know, deathly ill, uh, in my mind, you know, it was fine a week later, but like for that week, there, nothing mattered, but like getting to the fridge to mm-hmm. get a cup of, you know, to get some water and get back to bed. And yeah. like, and in this book, it talks about one of my favorite parts was well, not favorite, but one of the, you know, some illuminating parts was, um, uh, it was all madness. And I made the people mad was one of the quotes. Um, but the other one was that uh, high, uh, highly educated. It was in the prologue, basically how inflation is acute pain. So it's mm-hmm. like sickness. um, mm-hmm. and highly highly education was no protection. It was this woman talking about her father being very open-minded and very, uh, uh, you know, very tolerant of other people and other cultures And then Mm -hmm. as things got worse and worse, as inflation increased and and got worse and it had more effect on his life, he became anti-Semitic and eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, abandoned all these principles that he had. So, so even the most strongly principled people, when acute pain is felt and you're looking for an answer, you're willing to latch onto all sorts of things that otherwise you would be able to dismiss because you're strong. And so that Mm -hmm. inflation is, is that disease that erodes not only your buying power, but the core principles that define you because in a case where you're desperate, you're willing to accept a lot of things that otherwise you wouldn't have. Um, I find that part that, that quote, particularly the highly education was the high educated, highly educated was no protection against, uh, these feelings was really kind of palpable through all this. And, and throughout the whole book, you just get this sense of increasing madness of Mm -hmm. nobody being, nobody knowing where to look, where to turn, what to trust, who to trust, and just sort of grasping at whatever straws, you know, this is that really, there's a really sad sentence in there about um, an older gentleman walking up and seeing a foreign, uh, a foreign tourist walking out with an apple and asking him, how much was that apple? And he says, 12 marks. And he's like, it's too much for me. And walks off, he's kind of this shuffling man walking down the street, can't afford 12 marks, which I think was like two cents at the time. Um, and he was literally... To see 12 marks and then look at the numbers they're talking about later in the book, millions of marks, you know, billions of marks, and realizing how desperate this you know old man who's just trying to live the last you know years of his life with some dignity and 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 health, and is now can't afford an apple from his local market.
3: Yeah. And
1: I think yeah. it, it's interesting to think about the winners and losers, so to speak, and that the people that are clearly. Uh, or losing less I should say not necessarily a winner but the people that really are impacted are the ones that are getting income based on the hyper or inflating currency so that's usually government workers and then this particular example that John was mentioning is like this person is living off of um whatever retirement savings or not, retirement savings but also a pension and so he can't negotiate a higher pension amount, right? That's been baked in 20 years beforehand when he signed up to be a a government worker or whatever that might be. And so it's nearly impossible to renegotiate that. But the people that tended to do better were the people that could renegotiate their salaries daily basis. So if you're a contract worker, you're going in at someone's house and you're like, all right, well, yesterday it was 10 marks, now it's 50 marks or now it's 100 marks and and always being able to renegotiate that. So they had that ability to do that combined with the the kind of the best case scenarios being able to get income that's not denominated in your, in your currency. So like the Lebanese, there's a really, you know, the Lebanese are going through hyperinflation or in Lebanon, they're going through hyperinflation right now. And the people that are doing the best are the people that have, you know, knowledge worker jobs where they're getting the U S dollar as income. And they're just really winning because everything else in terms of costs, especially service things where you're, you're paying for a service is just fallen off a cliff. So they're, you know, normal, you know, salary, which was, let's say, even with everybody else two years ago, is now buying them 20 times as much goods and services. So in a lot of ways, they're winning out. And I think the other thing you know, that John kind of mentioned that resonated with me or kind of got something going for me is that the things that are the higher level um, division of labor goods. So if you're a professor, PhD professor, and you're teaching finance at a school, that is the top level of division of labor, but the basic needs um, of growing growing food and, and kind of those really, really basic needs are, are you, can, you can do better in that environment. So a farmer is a great example. Like they're growing food, everybody needs food, they're willing to be able to, to, to sell you food, but no one's willing to buy <clears throat> that PhD professor's advice on what's happening in the economy at this particular time. They just need food. And so that doesn't matter. And those, it works its way down kind of reverse order where again, you're gonna be a lot better off if you know how to grow food or you can grow food. But if you're some high-level unique kind of skill set, highly educated, you just lost your total income and it kind of works its way down from that. And you can kind of see that happening now. And I think that's good to be aware of because you know it's happening slower in the United States. So for example, my grandfather was a history teacher. And uh, at 25 years old or somewhere around there, he was able to buy a home and provide for four children and a stay-at-home partner. And now I know people that got out of teaching two teachers because they couldn't afford a home and they got into uh, other industries. And so it's interesting to see the parallels there. It's happening a lot slower here, but it is happening. And I think... Uh, You know, that's one of the takeaways um, that John mentioned and kind of resonated for me. I'm
2: sure somebody's created this, but there should be like a Maslow's hierarchy of jobs, right? Like (laughs) you can't have the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy without the base layer. And You know, to make this as simple as possible, rewind Mm. 50,000 years in human history. Right when we're just kind of getting into the agricultural period of time, somebody came in and was like, "By the way, I am a PhD in economics. I'm <laughs> here to teach you some stuff about it." People be like, "Yeah, I'm just trying to like literally build my stone masonry hut. I, I don't care about that information right now. I'm not willing to pay for it. Uh, you know, or, or like I'm here to teach other, right, or whatever other high level profession you think of that you know if you if you because that's essentially what's happening in Weimar is like this society is reverting to a time gone by where, where only essential needs is what's being serviced. And otherwise, you know, you're not going to get paid for what you do. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of how I see all this is just, it's like reversion to a base layer. So you just remove any, any job that's above that base layer
1: does not matter. And here's a counterpoint to that in the Bitcoin world, we have people like John Vallas that we just pay and and all they do is think philosophy and sit there and, and give information. So he, he's writing the opposite That's right, the, the Renaissance. Or he's oh, like, he starts as a But I'm already in the Bitcoin goes,
0: realm, my man. I'm already right. in the Bitcoin realm. The Bitcoin, the
1: Bitcoin hierarchy of jobs <laughs> yeah. is just fine. You know, it's, it's, it's just oh. there to sit and think, talk to people. I mean, Bitcoin I think philosopher
3: I, is at the base layer. <laughs> I think also that you Bitcoin ain't paying me anymore. shit.
2: <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that Bitcoin Renaissance is 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 well underway and on its way and you know the clear parallel of that is is the creation of double entry bookkeeping and the Medici family in, in uh 1500s the time Renaissance is a to me a one for one result of the the creative foreign the um, Italian foreign and the standardization of the Italian foreign for many many years and that resulted in the Italian Renaissance. And I think that, I mean, we I'm sure we've all talked about it before, but I think that Bitcoin Renaissance is is coming and it'll be the result of the creation of a Bitcoin standard. I hope. Yeah. Hopefully in our lifetime. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I think it's, that's kind of the enterprise of civilization, right? Like if, when, when it breaks down, you don't have all of those manifestations of creativity and self-actualization that flourish in arts and culture mm-hmm. and, education and whatever else you have basic needs of survival and in the book one of the the lines that i wrote down was um you know people valued warmth more than honor was kind of a a commentary on how morality degrades when Mm -hmm. when people are forced down that hierarchy of needs and like i obviously that's the case i hate it right because i think we all like to think Mm -hmm. no i'm i'm a principled person and i understand my morality and and i will uphold my principles and values regardless of circumstance but 99 percent of people that's not true and for those for whom it is true they become like well in many times in many cases martyrs in lore you know like these are the people mm-hmm. that died for what they thought was good and right and true mm-hmm. but very few mm-hmm. people fall into that category most people if they're starving they're going to rob an apple from the fruit store they're going yeah, to the best
1: case
2: is that they get remembered the best case is that they're a martyr and they're still dead at the end of it. Right. Yeah. Like they stood up for their principles, but they're no longer with us and hopefully they get remembered, but there's millions of people who stand up for their principles and just get washed away by the, by the horde. Many, right. many people have just forgotten the time because they stood over their principles. Well, congratulations. You died because you didn't feed yourself or you right. didn't.
0: But it's, it's a, it's a, I think a beautiful commentary on what takes ultimate supremacy for them. The continuation of their own biological life or the representation of certain perhaps eternal principles like truth like peace like love what have you like i think that's mm-hmm. that's a very interesting conversation to have and those people that actually make that choice in the latter i have like the utmost respect for even if they're not remembered by history because i'm sure there's countless that mm-hmm. haven't been remembered by history and the fact that those people in those moments chose to align themselves with something more eternal than their physical body is quite a quite a thing that very few people are capable of.
1: It is interesting, um, you know. On that, as you were saying that, I, it just came to me that it was so easy to motivate everyone in Germany to to do World War II or even World War One, but they weren't motivated by these principles either. And it seems like a lot of virtue signaling to go to war. Right? We're going mm-hmm. to defend or create the greater good and go to this other country. But no one is even trying to have the actual principles of honesty and truth and some of the qualities that you mentioned. And, and it's interesting to think about how high much higher that the war mindset, let's call it, I don't even know what need that would be, but is much higher than the, most people's principles and honesty and truth and things of that nature. And you can see that you know in a book like this where people are much more motivated mm-hmm. to just go attack somebody else and go to war with some yeah. other country even when they are when, even when their needs are being met. You know, they're just like, oh, let's go invade this other country. And then, of course, you know, I was just looking at the Wireman Republic and like, they, I guess they only had one percent of Jews and then they're going to exterminate, you know, a whole, you know, a whole population. I mean, that's that's a whole nother kind of um, thing. And so I just I just thought that was interesting, especially because, you know, a little bit of what we talked about is is World War One and World War II and how you know Hitler came to power. And I think the biggest history question I've always had is is it's 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 obvious like people always say they're like oh hitler was really charismatic but it was the hyperinflation that created the environment of moral decay Mm. that allowed some dummy to come in and everyone voted voted him into office let's keep that in mind and he won a times man of the year twice you know i don't know if that's necessarily something influential in the world but he won that he's the only person who won that twice right so you have americans time magazine voting him in twice and then the other thing that's very interesting is that you go from completely destitute losing World War One, hyperinflation in the middle, and then all of a sudden you turn around you, and you have enough money and resources to fight almost the entire world. You know, the, he, he invaded France, Great Britain, Russia, and then he wanted to attack the United States almost all at the same time. And I find that to be... Very interesting question, because it's like, where did this this crazy person get all this money, this resources to to turn this country around? One from almost like a business practice. Right. So if you can turn the country around from from that to this, it, you know, wh- wh- how did how did that happen? And I think that's very under um, thought in in the space and in, in history where this person just turned around a destitute country into a war turn, you know, a war war machine you know that can compete on a global scale
0: yeah Mm -hmm. this is the thing that's so maddening about how issues are addressed in our day and age and and probably every era because they're so oversimplified to your point i mean what the 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 factors that coalesce that produce the history that we've had are basically infinite you know and uh, yeah, like they There's so many things that went into that. You know, another variable, which they cover briefly in the book, is how in the latter part of the 20s, Wall Street invested a fuck ton of money in Germany. And that's part of the reason why Germany was able to turn things around so quickly from hyperinflation in 24 to basically like booming society where culture is flourishing and people are happy and healthy and all sorts of good shit is happening, you know, two or three years later. And then as a result of the 1929, Crash in, you know, Wall Street crash and depression. Then all that was sucked out, and now you've got another extremely abrupt uh, imposition of deprivation on that same population. So think about the roller coaster in just ten years, like come out of a war, hyperinflation or hyperinflation. Things are great. Oh shit, we're fucked again. And how fertile is that ground for someone to appeal to? All of the mm-hmm. the thing that's going on, the things that are going on in someone's mind and body there. Like you want the good life, and you were hard done by by these factions, and now you're deprived. And what are you gonna do to feed your family? And what's the history of your your country? And all and into this, into that uh vacuum steps someone who allows you to, who gives you an answer to those questions, right? Who who mm-hmm. appeals to that impulse within you to say, you're right. It's You know, like you have been wrong done by and there, you know, we have to find a solution to this. And and to the point about like good and bad sort of thing, I think the vast majority of people who've done bad things in history and indeed all of us in our everyday lives, I think we typically think we're doing what's good, maybe not the highest Mm -hmm. good, but we think we're being like good and moral actors, but we Mm -hmm. may just be skewed by, of course, we're coming from the perspective of us and our family are the most important thing. Uh, more important than, you know, you and your family are those people. So I'm going to see what I think to be good through that lens. And that's why the, you know, the whole notion of good, and this involves philosophy and theology and religion and stuff is such a tricky one because like someone Mm -hmm. can come along and whether it's a politician, you know, whether it's Hitler, whether it's someone presuming to help whatever problem, they can step in and basically align with your notion of good and align with that impulse that you're feeling to resolve some situation. And I think this is, you know, one among many reasons or ways in which these things just propagate, you know, and things kind of start snowballing and get out of control. And before you know it, things are way past the point of no return.
3: Right that yeah, before you know it, you're in the, in the kind of outright, um, uh, uh hatred between, you know, nations or groups or whatnot, because from, uh, from uh, if if, you, if you're coming out of a period of such desperation right all it takes is a is is a is a convincing you know po- politician and a, and, a, and a government system that promises you to you know prop you up and bail you out and 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 flourish you um so it's it's like you know it can it can be quite quick i think the 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 switch into you know a uh, uh, aggressive kind of a um uh, not to say combat, but but tension, you know, between groups and and nations. And I think as as you're talking about, John, we're seeing some of that now, right? There's a lot of uh, 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 frustration across a whole bunch of different countries. Um, this uh, new leader was elected in Italy, and a lot of what she's you know expressing is you know very kind of internal national pride sort of of, of concepts. Because of the, but to the point that you were making, we don't we don't often consider the myriad of factors that got you know, that get people, you know, as, as upset and incensed as they, as they become, but these are just cycles that continue to, to repeat and we're seeing them again.
0: Yeah. And, and that deprivation that John first brought up is like, is what allow is, is an accelerant for that, or, you you know, it makes for more fertile soil because Mm -hmm. if you don't have the basic needs of life, you're going to gravitate towards the ideas or the people that presume to resolve that for you. And right. you know you're gonna see that as good. And you yeah. know I think that's part of the reason why these things you know get out of control and people don't realize it at the time. You know in, in that book I mentioned mm-hmm. before, uh, I think it was they thought they were free, although it might be another one. But anyways, the, the, it was an analysis of Germans living through the period of like, well, basically late 20s to mid30s or Hitler's rise to power. And of course, you know, the question basically from the Western world is, how come you dummies didn't see it? And you know, th- this person was actually one of the ones that was concerned because they they interviewed like ten different people—butcher, baker, lawyer—in the nineteen fifties, I believe. So it was still pretty fresh. And uh, this person did see it, but what they were saying, and I think a lot of us maybe can relate to this uh, from our experiences of the last two years, was they were trying to say that you're you're you seem like an alarmist cuz you're saying they think you're saying a leads to z and that's a preposterous jump there's a lot of stuff in there and they just think well that's not plausible when what you're saying is no a leads to b and then b to c and then c to d and then d to e e to f and all those little like as we were saying before those little moves just creep up and by the time you get to z it's it, it's unrecognizable from a and it, you would of course you don't go from one to the other But it's all these small Mm -hmm. steps along the way. And all those small steps represent oftentimes, I think, you know, a violation of certain values or principles or an invitation to suspend your better judgment or rational thinking because of some, you know, emotional appeal or some uh, special circumstance that has arisen you know it's like oh well you know only for now right we're, we're only going to act this way okay. now and then we'll go back to later when things are resolved and there's always an excuse to suspend mm-hmm. rational thinking principles and, and and morality and if that is allowed to happen i mean you can make the case once but if it's allowed to happen in sequence you wind up in a place that you never thought you'd wind up there and this particular guy was saying like that's the case i was trying to make to everybody but everyone just thought I was alarmist because they couldn't see how the A was related to. And of course, we have to recognize that it's really easy to look at history through the lens of hindsight, because we can say, oh, Weimar hyperinflation, Hitler coming to pow- power kind of makes sense you know, through all the things that we've been discussing. But what if it was 1929? And you don't have the horrors of the Holocaust and World War II to contextualize all this. You don't that's unthinkable. You would never, like, that's never happened, right? So why would you think something like that is possible? You're just thinking, oh, here's this, you know, crazy guy in Germany who gives these impassioned speeches, and he's not very popular. You know, he, he a failed coup attempt in, what was it, 28 or, or something like that. He was thrown in jail. Just another wacko, like, uh, fringe politician person. You know, not a big deal. We're still good. You know, times are great. New, there's a new movie in the cinema, and it's like super avant-garde. And look at this architecture. Like, we're good. With, with the context of what it led to, of course, it's way easier to say, oh, my God, you guys are stupid for not having seen it.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because it's like there was history that that showed this. I mean, the Roman Empire was a great example. It's just not taught and it's not it wasn't in books. And the Chinese had the same issue and almost every single culture had some type of inflation or hyperinflation Um, you know events and so it's just not surprisingly well documented that part
0: that part for sure there's precedent i just kind of meant the scale of the horrors of world war ii like that people that made it more kind of egregious of looking back on it and being like how could you not see this but absent that like you're right you may see these other periods of inflation and be like guys these typically don't work out super well but again this Mm -hmm. feeds into the whole notion that they wouldn't Of course, the government, but also the the government wouldn't admit that it was the inflation that was causing the problems. And hey, look at today. Where the fuck are we now? Like, look at what's (laughs) happening. You know, no one is saying the obvious thing. You have the central bank governors from Canada and from the EU and from the US all saying like, oh, no, this is supply chain and this is this and this is Russia. And it has nothing to do with the $8 trillion that we printed over the last two years. And then you've got politicians blaming the greedy corporations and the greedy CEOs you know so we're in the exact same scenario where nobody is pointing to the problem or at least you know none of the quote unquote authorities you know wackos like us are pointing to it but again you can you can see why maybe they they didn't revisit those prior times when the same thing had happened because many of them were just so used to gobbling up what was told to them and they weren't told that this was a scenario that had transpired before
3: and, and and not only that, like, th- that's not only true, continues to be true today, but it's supported and anchored by it anchored in like, entire institutions, right, that are devoted to teaching modern monetary theory, right. And, and we give awards to the Paul Krugman's of the world and give them airtime and, and such. So if you're a person who doesn't, isn't going to think for yourself, well, you're going to say, well, if Harvard says it, and if Krugman says it, and if the New York Times says it, you know, then you just kind uh, of go on with your life, believing believing what you're, what you're fed. Uh, it's a lot of the same stuff.
1: And I think it's interesting that, you know, we're not taught logic and reasoning and philosophy, because one of the main Things in logic is, you know, that's anti logic, let's say, is the argument from authority because this person said it. And we have so much of that in our society. Paul Krugman said it. It's the New York Times, Fauci, you know, the presidents, you know, either one. Like, you know, we see so many people on both sides just being like, that's what they said. This is what this person said. Therefore, as opposed to critical thinking, reasoning, and dialoguing with their peers and trying to find errors in their thinking and being open to those errors, right? Like how, how am I wrong about Bitcoin? Tell me about how I'm wrong about the hyperinflation and these numbers. And and we've just lost that. And then there's a, you know, kind of consensus for sure as well, where people just want to do what their neighbors and what their friends are doing and what's in the Overton window. And that's been proven over numerous times where they'll bring you know, they've done studies where they bring people into a room and there's smoke coming into the room and everyone just acts like it's normal. You know, it's a it's a setup and there's one person coming in and it acts like it's normal. And and, and that person then acts like it's normal, as opposed to there's smoke coming in, there's fire. And there's lots of examples of that where they've repeated that study and over and over again which is why I love the Bitcoin community because, you know, they might be a little aggressive in terms of calling out bullshit where you're just trying to like eat lunch with them. You know, you're just like, <laughs> I'm just trying to eat a sandwich with some bread. All right, guys, like calm down. And they're just like calling out everything. And you're like, all right, all right, cool. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> forgive me for eating a sandwich this one time. And, um, and, but it's great on the flip side for all these other reasons, right. Where the, the most important reasons that we, the most important reasons and so it's great to have them part of that community but it is interesting that that's where the flaw is in the logic and the the reasoning and the argument from authority and so that's where a lot of the we don't learn from the past because that's that's again use cases logic and reasoning we just argument from authority and that gets back to the the cycle over and over again in each one of these countries i mean the interesting thing about this book is that there's lots of examples of this happening around the world, and maybe even in the United States at this moment that we can pull from. But people just do not want to learn about this, and it's there for the taking. You know, the book is a little dry, but all the knowledge is right there for your people to learn. So I just want to bring up one counterpoint to some to
2: some of this. Well, I guess I mean this book is um, you know a pretty clear example of one of the most horrific examples, the horrific results of what can happen from runaway inflation. Um, And we're sort of having this conversation around like sort of assumption that that's sort of the, maybe the assumption that's sort of the, the road that we're on the track that we're on. Um, But I'm wondering, is there a way that we can, other than, you know, I guess there, there are two examples I brought up earlier, you know, you can either go the water public way, which everything eventually collapses the, the, underpinning dollar collapses, and that's essentially the inevitable result of all fiat currencies, um, or are we in a period that's more akin to the late 70s? So like late 70s, you have a sort of extended period um, during stagflation where inflation goes up double digits for multiple months, um, and eventually Paul Volcker comes in, raises interest rates, and makes it very painful, but eventually we get away from that hyperinflationary um, period is what Jerome Powell doing right now, similar to what Paul Volcker did. And do we have the ability to? Maybe, maybe the the answer to this is that there is no escaping it in the long term because you have the removal of sound money from the underpinning, you know, currency, and you're just pushing it further down the road. But I'm curious, you know, if you guys have thoughts on, you know, which period we're in or what what results might be from the financial uh, sort of steps that that central banks are
1: taking. Yeah, I have a thought on that, unless somebody else does, I kind of got to- Yeah, go 1st
0: I'm sure we all do, so you go first.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, It's interesting because I've thought about that as well, and what's the difference between Germany and Weimar Republic, they had a lot of debt and they had a lot of countries around them and they weren't the global reserve currency. So the difference with the United States, and, and it's very interesting, it seems very clear to me, But what what happens when Paul Volcker raises interest rates to 18%, he sucks all the liquidity and cash out of the other economies, fiat currencies, and potential different assets, right? And so when you've got the global reserve currency jumping up to 18%, that means that everybody around the world can go into the safest investment in the market or relatively compared to other currencies. And it makes those other currencies a lot um, weaker in comparison, which also triggers an event where they get out of those currencies. So if you're getting an 18% or 5% um, return, let's just say 18% Paul Volcker, you're going to be jumping out of the Turkish lira at any chance you get. You're going to be jumping out of any other kind of fringe currency. uh, And it kind of creates that uh, feedback loop where because everybody's jumping out of those currencies and the same thing with the stock market, you can think about it as another kind of currency derivative. People are jumping out of that into cash and into treasury bonds um, by increasing that rate and it destroys the economy. So everyone gets really scared and then they keep piling into dollars and, and treasury bills. And so I guess the point that I'm making is the difference is one, we've got the global reserve currency, so it's not going to be that acute Two when we when the interest rates increase, it destroys all the other currencies and their economies, which also allows us, you see the Dixie going through the roof right now and every other currency. The value of the dollar is going through the roof, and all the other currencies are you know, losing 23% of its value. Well, all that money' is coming into the US dollar, which allows the US dollar, the next time they print their trillions of dollars, it's not as bad as it would have been if they didn't raise those rates and suck all that money into uh, the global reserve currency. So that's my main thesis with how the Fed is operating in terms of interest rates. Everyone thinks, seems to say like, oh, it's unemployment rate and maybe the stock market breaking. But I think once all those other economies kind of break and all that energy and monetary energy gets sucked into the u.s dollar and the u.s treasuries that's when they'll kind of turn um from that angle and and i also that is the difference between us and germany germany didn't have that ability to do that they had nothing no one was fleeing into the, the german mark at the time and so i think that's a huge difference which yeah that's a, that's a huge difference so i'll
3: leave it there yeah um yeah No, know I, I john is it cool if i go yeah yeah yeah, um no yeah uh Blake I th- I fully agree with uh with Blake and I think other kind of um uh, interesting component I think of uh, and 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 a difference between you know the 1970s and today beyond the you know, egregiously larger amount of debt, and and the much more painful you know path uh, that everyone has as as the U.S. increases rates. Beyond beyond that, I think is um is uh the it, the interconnectivity of, the, of of the world as it is today, right? This kind of dollar milkshake theory, where our currency is going to absolutely decimate every other, you know, country that's effectively a vassal state. Right. Um, um, and, and, but the the interesting thing to me is what happens from a game theoretic perspective as these countries wake up and say, wait a minute, what the fuck? Like if this keeps happening or as the Dixie keeps exploding, you know, what's our move you know are we just going to sit here and take it or are we going to you know start to coordinate you know uh efforts and perhaps and you could say that so we're, we're starting to see some of this right and with bricks and and and, and such um so I, th- I think um uh there's the, there's a, a a handful of differences and and this time around um with the pace of you know information as, as it flows acro- across the world versus how it did in 1970, right? There's very, very, very few people who were privy to this information, you know, globally, uh, geopolitically relevant information. Nowadays, every, you know, idiot with a with a knife with an iphone has has uh, access to the same information it'll be really interesting to see kind of the game theory play out between nations um as uh as uh the fed does does its thing right and, and potentially can uh, you know continues on its on its hiking se- uh, uh you know path
0: yeah one of the things kind of related to this that i found interesting in the book was there were periods like in 23 in 24 and this is you know, I said it was boring at the beginning, but this detail is definitely valuable or interesting at the least, um, that the mark like would have months where it would dramatically appreciate, right? So this like dramatic depreciation would reverse for a period of time. And you can just imagine like the psychology again, like t- toying with the psychology of the people at the time, like, oh, we're going back to normal now. We're on the upswing, right? You know, We're, we're on the upswing, like things are kind of improving. And then another... You know another downswing, and I, I think we have such a normalcy bias most of the time. Like we think things are going to either go back to the way they were, or basically truck along on the same sort of trajectory that they've been on. And you know, I, I have no idea short term how all this is going to play out. Like I, I suspect our views are somewhat similar, but you know, to borrow a, a overused term from the space, like you can't taper a Ponzi. So I don't, you know, I I think this system ultimately winds up in a similar fate because I think from all the demands being asked of of more and more people that are increasingly in a deprived state, they're just and all the debt burden that they have, they're going to have to print, even though they know that printing is, you know, the wrong thing to do, is is sealing their fate, just as they have done in this example and and as they did in so many other examples in history. Like, you know, people in, in the machine know that this is a road to hell, but it's Mm -hmm. like, what's the alternative? And basically the alternative is like, well, we pull the plug now and admit that we fucked everything up or we, you know, we go with the status quo and we meet seemingly the demands of the people, of the people, you know, we, we carry out the mandate of the people. Let's say people want more social services. People want more support. People want stimmy checks. People want a cap on the price of oil let's give it to them. We're, we're that's our role as go- of government. We are supposed to give people what mm-hmm. they want. So let's give it to them. And I won't be around when it breaks. And, you know, so my perspective is, I don't know how much longer um, this can persist, you know, like part mm-hmm. of me wants not to be an alarmist and be like, Oh, they'll kick the can down the road. And we won't see like real disorder for another 10, 20, whatever it is years. But I'm not so sure because if anything, this book and and other examples kind of one of its insights are, Don't be so sure that you revert to the mean. Don't be so sure that you go back to Mm -hmm. normal. You may be entering into a completely other state. And Mm -hmm. that's even more the case now that we have something like Bitcoin on the scene. And I know Bitcoin is still extremely nascent for most people. And like the vast majority of people that own it probably have a little bit in a Coinbase or a brokerage account. They're not like ideologically into it like we are, but that is proceeding. And and the greater the necessity, the greater the the attention will be on, on solutions to it. And I think people will wind up in Bitcoin and to what extent that acts as a catalyst for this being different than than previous times or this happening faster than we might otherwise think remains to be seen but I certainly think it's possible that it could all happen much sooner and I mean again, we look around on the 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 uh, president of Belarus I think I saw it today right he's he's declared no more rising prices you know and then you have uh <laughs> you have,
2: fantastic
0: you have um, in the uk i think uh, there's a cap on ener- on gasoline or energy now right and and so the government mm-hmm. is going to is going to pay the difference and you you have all of these crazy crazy policies happening in every country of the world that are just perfect hallmarks perfect signposts mm-hmm. you could look back and see when they've been deployed in the past and and what place on the timeline <clears throat> do those actions typically place the previous episode and I would say hmm. that when they're when they're happening on this scale and this egregiously, this nonsensically, a president just said, I declare no more price rises. When when you're at that place in the timeline, I think you, you might be a lot closer to things unraveling than you might think. Yeah. And true. so yeah. I'm not sure how it all plays out, but I'm and you know, I, think I, I this is part of I, the reason I'm fully in Bitcoin land because I don't Mm -hmm. want to contend with that degree of uncertainty. I want to be in the place where I'm as insulated as possible and I'm I'm not trying to time anything. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm as stable as I can be because I don't know if it happens tomorrow or if it happens 10 years from now. And just my final point on that is, again, this, this part is not necessarily happening right now but I think as the adoption of Bitcoin and as the Bitcoin ecosystem and economy grows, The degree to which capital is going to be more efficiently allocated in that space, the degree to which that ecosystem and that economy is going to outcompete the legacy system and economy, I think is going to be dramatic. And that will further put pressure on the functioning of the legacy system. Now, again, like we're not even that aspect of the argument would almost make me think we're further away because I don't think that's super close to happening yet, but- it's a variable and you know so i don't know how they're all going to come together to determine when when thing when we experience the type of disruption that you know we've been discussing in this conversation
2: yeah i i i, I, I totally I, I, so yeah that's that's the issue that i was just kind of rolling in my head it's like okay how would people kind of poke back at this and they would say, one, well, it's because of reparations so I can dismiss it. And two, we've had similar situations in the past like stagflation in the seventies and we were able to come back from that. But how many times can you get back up? I think is is the question. And how close are we to that point where you're running? And I think there are a lot of hallmarks in this book that we can say are happening now that maybe weren't happening in the seventies or other periods of high inflation. <clears throat> one of those examples is, is the taxes. And you talked about earlier, you know, people who are really paying attention in, in Germany as Hitler was coming to power, got out, right? You had to be really paying a lot of attention and you had to have certain freedoms of movement and certain freedoms of lifestyle that allowed you to do that, right? You couldn't just, even if you did recognize it. And I think, you know, for, for us, uh, the pandemic is a perfect example where even you recognize what was happening in a lot of cases, there wasn't a whole lot you could do yeah. to yeah. escape some of the things that were going on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to travel or you wanted to go somewhere, or whatever, like there are certain things, you got to produce some kind of proof of vaccine. You got to you got to get a negative COVID test. You got you know, uh, I can't just go very easily. And in in Germany, you know, and I think some people miss this. It's like, well, why didn't people just leave as they realized it was getting bad? Well, in the beginning, you could leave pretty easily. But then, very very quickly, uh, there was this ing- there was this you know emigration tax right. If you want to leave Germany, that's great, but you're going to give me 10% of your wealth before you go. And then it was 20%. And then it was 50%. And then it was 90%. And then it was everything, right? So if you were if Jew- if you if you were um, Jewish person living in Germany at the time, and you wanted to, you were like, you know what, I recognized it, this water's getting too hot, I'm out, I want to go to France, I want to go to the US, I've got people, whatever. Okay, in the beginning, no problem, then 10%, then 20, then 30, very quickly, that goes up. Now, the choice is no longer stay here or leave, it's stay here and keep what I think I have in terms of my wealth or leave and completely start over in another nation. This may be a family generations old with generational wealth that Mm -hmm. you've built over time. And now you have to completely give that entire history up in order to leave. Mm -hmm. And even if you recognize that the Holocaust was coming, even if you recognize what was, you still may not be willing to say, "I'm going to give up absolutely everything that my life has been built on, and that my family's life has been built on for generations." To do that, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, I'm sure you guys have all heard these arguments about if Bitcoin existed, maybe Germany, maybe Hitler does, doesn't come to power because the people are able to escape with their wealth. You know, with a seed mm-hmm. phrase memorized in their brain, they're able to walk across a border with all their wealth intact instead of trying to leave and having their gold, their jewels, their art, whatever else confiscated by the Germans. Um, but in here on page 47, and this is, this is why, uh, you know, it feels like the temperature is hotter than maybe it was in the 70s. And that's, and that's sort of the taxes. But, um, you know, it talks about income tax in 1921 started at 10% on the first 24,000 marks. Fast forward a couple of years, 24,000 marks is absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, rose to 20% on the next 60,000 marks and so on upward until a maximum 60% was paid on all income over 395,000 marks a year. I read that number and I was like, wait a minute, didn't Biden just say that nobody over $400,000 a year would (laughs) be under $400,000 a year? It was like the coincidence between 395,000 marks and $400,000 in today's environment. And Bitcoiners see that number Mm -hmm. and we all recognize $400,000 could be nothing in 10 years from now. So essentially you're raising taxes on everybody regardless of, you know, because that number doesn't stay fixed. That value of the dollar doesn't Mm -hmm. stay fixed just like the value of the mark didn't stay fixed, which I just thought was you know, I, I saw that number and I was just like, Oh my God. Like,
0: <laughs> And this is why it's really like, especially, you know, becoming a Bitcoiner or seeing, you know, the orange light is really kind of a hero's journey, right? Because you have to, all those things and more that you just mentioned, <clears throat> you have to try to parse, you have to try to determine like, what is the truth here? What is actually going on? What's right and wrong? What am I willing to give up and stuff? And the point about people leaving is like, uh, leaving a family and a house and a job and all that stuff in Germany is a great example. Cause like when all of that is on the table and you, let's say you, you the prospect of moving to America and starting from begin from zero and you don't know what, what the hell you're going to do. You don't even speak the language, all that mm-hmm. stuff. How sure are you that that's the right move? Like, I, you know, that's a big move. So right. maybe things will go back to normal, or maybe it won't be so bad. Like you just let yourself believe because the alternative is so disruptive to your life. And it's so uncertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it it instills so much doubt in you that you're like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. And I think part of the, as far as I've, you know, my experience and people I've spoken to, part of the process of becoming a Bitcoiner and really seeing all the different ways in which money influences life, culture, politics, everything is like reassessing each one of those things and, be, and figuring it out once again, or at least recapitulating it in some way in your mind to, to have greater clarity on it. And then, there, you know, there's this inevitable, again, as far as I can tell, analysis of morality as well. Is, is the existing monetary system fraudulent? Is it immoral? Why is it immoral? You know? And so, like, you, you bump up all against all these questions. And I, the reason why I say hero's journey, because I think this, over time, causes people to reconstruct themselves, you know, reconstruct mm-hmm. their understanding of the world, reconstruct their understanding of themselves. What they want to be in the world, the change they want to see, the things they want to be involved in, the meaning that they you know that they derive, what gives them fulfillment—all this kind of stuff—and it's it's no easy journey. A lot of times, you know, like it's all fun and games on Twitter, you know, and NGU is great, but uh, and I'm you know we're certainly lucky that there's like an element of levity to it all because if there wasn't, it would just be way less fun. But it would be like reading this book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but you know what I mean. Like I think there's there's a lot wrapped up in it. And basically what you're, you, what you're asking people to do, especially when you're so absorbed, because when that, when that thing that you can't see, when you're the fish in the water who can't like, who, you know, they don't know they're in water, the monetary system is all encompassing, right? It influences the institutions that show up in society, the people that get funded, the people that have power, you know, the idea, like just so much as we all know. And so what you're being asked to do to see the truth you know, to properly respond to this scenario is to like shake up the snow globe to be like, wait, this worldview that I've constructed from all these signals from within this system is highly like, well, it's it's false in a lot of ways. And I need to reground it based on a greater perception of truth. And, and the reason why I have to do that is because if I don't, I'm probably going to be a victim of, that mm-hmm. system, that that false system with all of its false signals and the consequences that will befall me if I don't change my worldview. And changing your worldview is hard because your worldview is how you see the world, it's who you are. And so I can certainly appreciate why um, it's difficult for people, but I think this is also why it's so fulfilling for so many of us because you have that genuine feeling that you've s- seen the light as it were, right? Like you're seeing things differently or more clearly. And that's an like for myself and again many that I've spoken to that's a very energizing sort of phenomenon to happen to you because the world is kind of refreshed again and there's more hope mm-hmm. in the world and there's more possibility in the world and you see uh, uh, you see a solution to the, some of these problems that perhaps prior you felt you felt were insurmountable you know so it's a very mm-hmm. rejuveni- rejuvenating and re- revivifying sort of experience but it's all encompassing i guess is my point and for that reason for the reason that it's so par- such a paradigmatic shift i think that w- is what makes it so difficult for so many people to see so, yeah. yeah
3: and I, and i would john i would add that that uh um, it in addition to everything you just mentioned to me what it's brought to my life is peace right like i have this deep deep oh. sense of of peace it's it's really and it's hard to it's hard to describe to someone who's not a bitcoiner, right? It's the bomb. Uh, because it's, it's the the best. Not, yeah, <laughs> it's, so it's like it's it, and and I think when I when I, if I say that to a, a you know like a normie friend, they think that I'm talking about like a a a number, right, or or, yeah. or a particular net worth, and it's like. It's it's not that at all. It's this is it's this much much deeper sense of security and peace. Um. Uh. Because like you said, I feel like I've uh, you you've stepped outside of the the regimen that you were brought up in, right? And and re- entirely reprogrammed yourself. So beyond it being, in addition to it being rejuvenating and energizing, and it's all I want to share with folks because I I really would like for my friends to you know to to understand what I understand. It's overall at the same time if they don't end up understanding it i'm like uh, sucks for you man but i have a whole lot of peace you know i have a whole lot of like joy and peace in my life you know now uh you know uh, uh beyond you know but beyond beyond what i had before but yeah man it's it's it's, uh, it's a it's pretty remarkable that simply
0: you know being able to preserve the fruits of your labor in a manner that is less you know uh more impervious to viability than any form of property up until this point is kind of what delivers that—that that you know that yeah what you acquire you can retain and just but if just when that. you read
2: if when you read books like this that it, it articulates so well right because you see the opposite mm-hmm. right you know yeah. I think yeah. people yeah. didn't save their time I mean that was that was I, I always come back to time right like that was I think the most powerful thing I've be, I've learned as a bitcoiner is like the relationship between money and time yep like it's time that they're stealing from you when they print money it's yep. time. It's time that's being yeah. sold from you. It's not just, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a little bit poorer than I was yesterday. It's you're, you're the time yeah. and effort you put into making that money in the first place or saving it or making smart investments or thinking about what your money, you know, it's being eradicated every time they decide to run the printing press. And it's interesting back then it was so obvious, right? Cause they literally had problems printing them out of money, right? Like physically doing it was difficult yeah. and you could mm-hmm. see it on the streets. Like here's how much this, this brick of cash now buys me a dozen eggs or whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. now it's, it's become obfuscated. It's like going to the casino, you know, everything's become plastic mm-hmm. chips or, or numbers on a screen or, or uh, you know, the, if, if everybody had to pay, if everybody was still paying cash for gasoline right now, I feel like people would be paying a lot more attention to the fact that gas just went up a dollar 10, in a week and a half in San Diego, you know, in California. It just, I mean, one day I, I, I got gas on Friday and a week later I got gas again. And I was like, wait a minute, what, <laughs> what just happened? Like, but if I had to, you know, count out dollars, it, it, it's, it's definitely more, I, it, it has been, it has been abstracted a little bit. Yep. And I wonder in this digital age because prices can change instantaneously all the time, it both makes it, you know, it, it, it makes you feel it uh, in a way it, it, it does both right because you see it all the time because numbers are constantly changing i think gasoline is a pretty good example mm-hmm. you know my mm-hmm. my grocery bill may not change quite as quickly but that's changed quite a bit in the last two years as well those, know, just those evil capitalists john was damn yeah i know it was trying if to if only if making only too much money politicians and pelosi and all that stuff and then you know in, in this book it mentions politicians need to be seen acting and it talks all about these different laws that were passed and like the glutton law that was was written but not actually passed um which basically punished those that were doing well um and then you have you know pelosi putting forward the suggesting that there'd be a government ban on trading all trading for for congress people and it's like oh they're you know again this mirage of them doing something Right this this idea that we're we're fighting this too we're in with this we're in this as well um, and then eventually when those things don't work they get more and more uh, draconian or dictatorial or whatever you know whatever word you want to use and that's how you end up with things like. Hitler in power and, and and others because people are willing. It's it's this slow sort of, well, the politicians need to do something. Oh, I'm getting poor. Well, they're going to do something. Well, I'm getting poor. They're going to do something. It's getting more desperate. They're going to do something. Somebody's going to fix this. Somebody's going to fix this. And to Blake's point earlier, uh, I forget what chapter it is. I think it's in like, oh, it talks about when when the French went after the, what was it? The French and the Belgian uh, went into the Ruhr um, part it's of Germany. Industrial and that oil. galvanized everybody, right? Because like at one point, <laughs> You know, all the chickens are running out with their heads cut off. Nobody knows who to blame. Everybody's look everybody wants to fight everybody in their own Mm -hmm. community, in their own government, in their own society, whatever. And then now you have a you have a finally you have somebody else you can blame. And that's how, that's how these things happen right? Like when you're so desperate, you're looking for any answer at all. And the government finally says, hey, it's not your fault. Don't look in the mirror. We're not going to look in the mirror. We can point our fingers. It's always easier to point fingers than it is right. look in the mirror. Right. Um, and this is a perfect example of that. And, and I think we saw that, you know, we're seeing those pieces of social unrest you know, all those pre-pandemic rioting that was going on um, around Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and, and other sort of just general social unrest. I feel like every other week there was some protest I was watching going on. I was like, man, I know that street corner. It's no longer like, oh, it was some place that's far off or in some city that I don't recognize or whatever. It's like I've mm-hmm. been on that street. Corner. I know that area. Like that's not too far from where I am or where I was or where I've been or where I've lived. Um, and then and then now I drive down, you know, again, I live in in the city and not too far from here, there are 10 cities going up in places that I would have never seen that kind of, uh, that kind of living, uh, you know, used to be like, oh, well, that's, that's some neighborhood in the Bay area, whether it's, you know, a bad part of Oakland or a bad part of San Francisco or wherever, not where I live. But now I, you know, I'm, I went to a part of the city I haven't been to in about a year, year, year and a half, not too far from where I live. And there's tents everywhere. And you're seeing the effects of inflation on a daily basis. And, it's and uh, you know, we get used to it. And we, we, we
1: mm-hmm.
2: but then we eventually, when it gets so bad, we expect the government to do something about it. And then they play their role of, well, we're going to pass a new tax, or we're going to pass a new law, or we're going to pass a new, and that's going to fix it. Or we're going to pass an emergency stopgap measure, and that's going to fix it and eventually you run out of, Mm. eventually you just keep going and the emergencies get more and more frequent and, uh, you lose less and less of your, um, sovereignty and your autonomy. And, and, you know, last time John and I did one of these, it was on Bastiat's law. And you talk about, you know, plunder versus production and like the government continuously is on the side of plunder. And, Mm. you know, Atlas Shrugged is a book that I did not read for a very, very long time until, you know, maybe a year or so ago. And, so much of what's happening right now is what's happened is is, was predicated or or believed in the philosophies of Ayn Rand. And we're seeing it all the time. And, and, and when I try to bring these things up with people who aren't paying attention, um, you know, when I say things like, you know, the California, government of California banning combustion vehicles is a really bad thing. And they're like, what are you talking about? What are you, why, why is it a bad thing? Like, I'm not saying that electric vehicles are bad. I'm saying that the government deciding that they're bad, that deciding that combustion vehicles are bad is a really, really dangerous slippery slope. Mm -hmm. The kind of thing that ends governments altogether. The kind of thing that makes uh, irreparable harm and decisions to the people of a certain place. The kind of thing that makes people say, you know what, I don't wanna live in California anymore, which we're seeing in Mm droves, right? During the pandemic, people left California, go to Texas, go to Florida, go to places that spent more time Catering to the people that live there, rather than trying to prop up a, a government or a system that's been built over, you know, over fifty or hundred years. And mm-hmm. as Bitcoiners, we, I feel very lucky because I feel like I'll always be able to, in some way, shape, or form, be able to vote with my feet. And I think mm-hmm. the book "Sovereign Individual" highlights that to a much greater extent that we are in this new era of technological um, and financial uh, separation that allows us to say, you know what, I'm going to go live somewhere where they treat me good. And that is the real change here. It's like, that's the real difference for me, at least the way that I see it. It's like in the future or now I can say, you know what? You're not treating me well here and you don't treat me, my money, my time, my energy well. I can go somewhere else. And so for that, I have hope. And I think, you know, whether it's you listen to something that Thomas Strolight said or watch, whether it's generational wealth, whether it's, you know, this, this sci-fi, you know, the really out there Bitcoin stuff that gets into the psychedelic, spiritual, the, the stuff that I love talking about, um, like the, the hundred years, 200 years, 10,000 years down the road, like what does this society look like and what does society look like built on a Bitcoin standard? You know, I think John and I talked about this. One of my favorite conversations of the year last year it was you and Tomer talking about what the world will look, what the world could look like, and how. Um, and 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 I think this again, these things always highlight is it. like, okay, so we know what a society looks like on strong money. What does it look like on the strongest possible money? Mm-hmm. And that's Bitcoin. And I, you know, so for those reasons, I will always have hope, even in the face of reading things like this or seeing um, examples of, you know, our society sort of dipping into the same problems that we've had in the past, like, okay, let's try something new. And now we actually happen yeah. to live in a place where there is something truly new, not just evolutionary, not just, oh, it's a new technology is going to help, not just a stopgap of like, oh, well, Paul Volcker and now Powell's going to raise rates, like talking about real, completely new novel thing that exists on the planet that has never existed before. And that's Bitcoin and something I've mm-hmm. always try to, to explain to people is like, you don't understand that. Like, this is not just some new thing. It's not just a new way of transferring information. It's not just the internet that speeds things up or new money or new payment system whatever. It is a truly novel thing that exists on the planet has never existed before. And hopefully ushers in the world, the sci-fi future that we have seen or talked about or read about or watched the movies or whatever. Um, And I think we're going to see more and more art based around that. And that's really what's powerful is the memes and the art. You know, if you can mm -hmm. can create popular, powerful stories around memes and art, then maybe and that, you know, that's how we get our, our vision. And eventually, I
0: I think this is part part of the reason for that levity that we see, right? Because you look out on the world with those fresh eyes and you're like, holy shit. It is so fucked. Like it is just outrageous on so many levels oh, thank God I have Bitcoin, you know, like, just like, oh, oh, and like, you can't, the, the only natural response is to laugh at how absurd it all is, but also how, you know, I hate to sound, I know this sounds like a bit like a dick, but how capable you are now of insulating yourself from it. Because John, to your point, like, if you're, you compare yourself to that person wanting to leave Germany, who had the house and the job and the family and like all that stickiness, now you can be way more confident in your ability to respond to things and you can be more calm as a result and you can be more you know lighthearted because you know like well if a line is crossed I'm out and I can get out I can sell my house turn the proceeds into bitcoin mm-hmm. sell all my assets put it in bitcoin throw it in my brain and I'm gone and if I can you know mm-hmm. get over a border or you know be smuggled somewhere then I'm I'm good and just having that as a even an emotional or anxiety release valve in this day and age where like mm-hmm. clown world is fully in your face at every turn is I mean, you can't help but bring a smile to your face, right? And I think the the mm-hmm. other thing I wanted to mention was the, the, the language has been so co-opted. You know, we say inflation, and to your point, John, uh, you know, it is a theft of time. Right? Inflation sounds like such an innocuous mm-hmm. term. Oh, it's like an economic term mm-hmm. that economic people talk about. And like, that's not really my bag, so I don't have to worry about it. Instead of saying it's someone who's literally stealing from you and making it so that your time is no longer your own right you have to devote time to this person who's stealing from you that you don't even know them or know what's going on and it's and even that's a bit innocuous because like time is kind of amorphous but what we mean by that is like the the totality of your potential is what is contained within time you know and so you're referencing like what does the world look like in 50 years 100 years time when we have that degree of stability when we're well into that renaissance period where people are so, we, we discussed this a few minutes ago, we're so calm because we have a, you know, a higher degree of certainty around an aspect, one of the most important aspects of our life, i.e. finances, mm-hmm. our ability to move through the world. We have more confidence over that into the future, further into the future than we've ever had. And so what does that allow us to release? Okay, I don't have to worry so much about all these different worries, anxieties, uncertainties that I used to have. What's within me that I can now try to tease out and how, how much right. does that enrich my life? How, does that, how much does that enrich my family's life, my communities, the world? And so when there's that theft through inflation mm-hmm. is not just meaning you got to work more to pay the bills at the end of the month. It means that you're being deprived of all that, you know effectively, the, the collective human potential that we might mm-hmm. discover in ourselves and transmute into the world as a result of being so secure in the basic needs of life that we can then layer on top of that and see how high that hierarchy goes, what's at the top of that human potential or actualization hierarchy. That's what I think the Renaissance is gonna be uh, representative of. And I think that's always been the case, right? And so inflation is the counterforce to that. It's the thing that's impeding mm-hmm. that. That's what's being taken mm-hmm. from every individual and from us as a collective humanity. And um, you know, I think it's time well, we all do, so I'm not preaching to us, but that, lang- you know, it's just another example about how, uh, of how uh, the language is intentionally used to obfuscate what's really going on and who's really responsible for it.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Dude, go ahead.
3: No, no, go ahead. Blake. Go ahead.
1: Um, you know, it's interesting. That you, uh, I think, John, you mentioned earlier with the the goalposts. Like you see the goalposts, and I think that's what's amazing about this book. It, it shows that you're you're the frog being boiled. Going back to our earlier analogy, and you just see it getting warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer. And that's the beautiful thing about this book is that you can see those goalposts really well and. Also, it articulates the inevitability of how the system reinforces itself until collapse, right? It keeps going and keeps going and going, which, you know, if you're uh, in the Bitcoin community, that gives you confidence for a lot of reasons because everyone's going to have to get off their sinking Titanic and get onto your, your lifeboat, but your lifeboat just isn't a lifeboat. It's a, you know, party carnival cruise barge with, you know, free drinks and food, and it's a lot better and you're just waiting for everyone to kind of wake up. And so that that's the interesting thing from you know a security standpoint. Not only is inflation theft of your time, but it's also a theft of your consciousness and your security and you living in a higher level state of security. You know, and whether you have however many Bitcoin you have, or you know partial fractions of the Bitcoin, you can be confident that you can have that for the foreseeable future, into twenty and thirty years from now, and it's not going to be inflated away or stolen. And that's something that really impacted me in 2008 when the stock market crashed, and you've you know everyone's using the stock market as their piggy bank, and they lose 80 percent of their net wealth. And in this book, it was that one pensioner gentleman that was trying to buy an apple. He's lost everything, and that's been taken from him, and and he now he he doesn't even know how to 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 get his basic needs met and to to buy an apple. And that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. To me, this seems inevitable rather than a probable. You know, and if you look through history, it's it's guaranteed to continue to happen, and it's always happened. And now we have this new system that um, is nuclear proof, right? Like that is just unstoppable. And then you have Saifedine's book and, and the monetary history you, John. of.
0: John's got a bail. Sorry, Blake.
1: Um, the monetary history of of why the strongest money always wins, and you can rest your loyals on those kind of very principled economic things in the history of of monetary science or or fiat currencies inflating away. And I think that's something, you know, trying to trying to make some of this more actionable for the average plebe or the average listener, where it's like, what do they do? And I think that's a big frustration that I have with most content out there is that there's not a lot of actionable things. And I think maybe we can talk a little bit about that, where obviously one solution is to, to buy Bitcoin, but maybe we can, you know, um, talk about that, but also just kind of other solutions as you guys might see them, um, you know, and, and and make that more actionable for for the average person, whether that's kind of being conscious of those, um, those flags or, you know, one of the things that is coming to mind as I'm saying this is that the real estate market uh, in my city went up by 40% and more people were making money from their real estate than they were from their jobs They owned a home and it, you know, increased in 40%. So you've got a million dollar home. Now you just made $400,000 from that home. That to me really shows that money is, is dying, you know, and that we are in that state and that's uh, undeniable. It's another flag in that kind of road that we're traveling down. And I, I'd love to hear what you guys think about just kind of potential solutions or how you, know, you see those flags and then you're going to make, continue to make a decision, you know, whether you're, into Bitcoin now, if you're doing kind of more of a leverage real estate play that Michael Saylor talks about, or you also are thinking about, hey, when do I get out of my city, my state, my country, uh, and and how you're thinking about that? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And maybe... Yeah, how you came. From El Salvador, I think, or sure. your family's from El Salvador. Maybe you have a an interesting perspective on that, especially since that's a yeah, big point yeah. Actually,
3: it's it's great that you bring that up. Um, just to tie in a couple of things, everything you you were just asking, along with some of the jurisdictional stuff we were talking about earlier. I think John was saying, "Hey, we have the freedom to be like, I'm going to take my 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 wealth, and I will march out of this state or march out of this country to wherever you know I want to go." Um, it's interesting. I uh I, you know, I've been a Bitcoiner, I've, I've been a saver in Bitcoin, right? I would say I began saving in Bitcoin in a meaningful way um 2018-2019 t- so I'm I'm kind of from from that vintage in terms of being a saver. Um uh and and fast forward all the way to 2021 um and I hear this announcement, right? That my country of all the countries in the world it's mine, you know, that that's that's kind of taking this leap forward and I got to tell you instantly I um, recognize the importance again from a jurisdictional perspective because I, I live in the states. But instantly, I realized I have to have all my shit in order for this world that I presume for the the the, the world as I presume it to be in five, six, seven, ten years. Right? I want to make sure that I have the uh, as Katie the Russian calls it plan b right my my plan b you know passport um and 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 my pathway to another you know jurisdiction should i you know need need that to happen so i think um that as a and, and and i'm i'm just i'm fortunate in that i have you know birthright citizenship so getting a passport was pretty easy um and, and that kind of thing but i th- i think um i think as bitcoiners we have to think about uh Giving ourselves those those options, creating those you know those jurisdictional options for ourselves. It doesn't necessarily have to be you know El Salvador, but but and everyone can do their own research as to what what jurisdiction makes sense for them. Um, but I do anticipate a world in which you know things get more wobbly, and it's not a done deal, or it's not a it's not a it's not a given. You know that our particular country is going to be amenable to bitcoiners now and forever, right? political winds might change, right? And that's a, an unfortunate part of the proof of stake kind of, you know, political system, right? It's like you get a different administration that feels differently about proof of work protocols and and Bitcoin mining and things like this. And suddenly all of us find ourselves in a different you know, scenario. So, so I think about, you know, uh, and, and I've been really fortunate, you know, to to kind of be um, in this kind of Salvadoran context. Um, and, and like I told, I told my family, like jokingly one day, but I'm like, we have like a local airport here, um, like one of those small regional airports, like a, a couple of miles away from our house. And I'm like. If ever, if ever this government says proof of work is, is banned, we'll get our shit together and get out of here, you know, as, 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 uh, as, as soon as possible. But, um, but yeah, no, and not to be alar- alarmist or anything, but again, we, we've talked about this earlier too, right? Some of us sound like crazy alarmists to our normal, normie friends. But if we do see a world kind of like, you know, Weimar Germany, where, uh, uh, things, um, in in extremely short order, get very disorderly for folks. Then I would say I would encourage any Bitcoiner to think about now, not 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 then, you know, but now, you know, start to do your research and prepare, you know, a, a, a path to a you know different jurisdiction should you need it, regardless of where you happen to be. I'm not talking just talking to American, you know, uh, Bitcoiners, but regardless of where you are, you know, um, so yeah, I would that, that, that I guess that's a little bit about yeah
0: my you know, so everyone's situation with assets and investments and stuff is different. So like, I, I try to keep it simple. Like, I think one in these times being as adaptable as possible is probably a positive Mm -hmm. thing now as possible, you know, who knows what that really means, but, you know, kind of knowing how you would navigate circumstances should they shift rapidly. And I think, you know, for the, for the average person, continuing to work, providing value, refining the way in which you do Mm -hmm. so And then siphoning whatever savings are available outside of your expenses and whatever into Bitcoin. And it's not sexy. You're not a trader. You're not going to get the Lambo. You're Mm -hmm. not going to get the big hundred X, but I just think, well, yeah, you eventually you'll probably get the Lambo, but point being is (laughs) like uh, taking the humble approach to this, where you just, Mm -hmm. we're moving into, you know, if we're right about this hyper-Bitcoinization is going to be a landscape where More and more merit and true value is rewarded, Mm -hmm. and not all this Mm -hmm. rent seeking and trading and paper gains and all this kind of stuff is. And so, become a person who's aligned with that, who's ready to move into that system and provide whatever value it is you're capable of providing, and continue to try to refine the manner in which you do so. And then be rewarded by the people who see the value in that and take some of those rewards and put it in, you know, this and put it in Bitcoin to accrue all the benefits that some of which we've touched on here, you know, that peace and that Mm -hmm. security and that comfort and that growing optionality over time. Because, you know, as we all know, I think that'll be the way to do it a hundred years from now. It just happens to be the case, you know, where we are in the kind of S curve that it's probably going to be extra rewarding in terms of the purchasing power that you're able to accrue as a result of taking that strategy with your savings. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, like, And it's tough, right? Because so many people are in such difficult situations, you know, all around the world, but in the US and developed countries as well, like a lot, a huge portion of people live paycheck to paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. So it's difficult Mm -hmm. to convince them, like, play the long game, just another 20 years and things will be good. But if they don't play it that way, they're going to wind up two steps back most often. If they try to go into the casino, whether it's an actual casino or a shitcoin casino or whatever, some get rich quick, whatever, they're gonna wind up in a worse situation. So if they just kind of try to get their life together, try to eradicate or, or limit um, unnecessary expenses, try to continue to refine who they are as a person and what value they provide to the market, and then take those savings and put them in Bitcoin and just keep and do that consistently. Do that and you know mm-hmm. next year will be better than this year. And isn't that a victory? And then the following year Mm -hmm. will be better than that year. And then five years from now will be better than now. It's not as sexy. And you're going to see on Instagram and your friend and like, you know, you're going to see all the bullshit fiat stuff that is thrown at Mm -hmm. you a million times a day. Mm -hmm. You got to ignore that. And you got to say, you know, like what is in alignment with my principles and values and what I think is most likely to occur? And what are the tools at my disposal? I should engage them to try to bring about the best circumstance for me, and I should be humble and patient in my doing that because I recognize that not being that way is gonna gonna be detrimental to me. I think is is
3: the right way to play it. And John it, it, it's uh I think it's um what one of the challenges of of kind of expressing this to folks is is that we've all been brought up in such a fiat minded like a short, you know time, Horizon minded sort of way Mm. that it that is so difficult for all of us to to wrap our heads around when we're kind of unplugging ourselves from from that that regimen right it's like wait you mean to tell me all I need to uh, what I actually should be doing is providing value to the world and not expecting some you know uh um some payout immediately you know but rather in its due time what it it's so counter to how or, you know our whole generation is, has has been brought up it's really really difficult and it that's it's it's further complicated by the kind of the the broader digital asset or crypto you know world that promises you immediate gratification and immediate returns when that's in fact not at all what this philosophy is about right mm-hmm. and but I, but I think once once a person does start to internalize huh Wait a minute. How am I being valuable to the world? What am I doing that's making uh, that what am I offering to the world that is of value, right? Uh, uh, that's a perhaps a slow process, you know, for folks, but that's that's the real work, I think. Once a person be- begins to see themselves as part of an ecosystem where it's like, "Hey, I I'm here to show up and contribute value." You know, that's that's what I'm here to do. Wow. Once once we slowly start to do that, then folks become you know, savers and, and then Bitcoin, you know, savers and Bitcoin and, and, and such, but it's such an uphill battle, I think, to get people out of like a short time frame sort of mindset, yeah. you know, and, and into one that is, that is selfless and patient and, and focused more on what I contribute to the world, what value I bring to the world, rather than what I can take from it.
0: And, and that social contract, as it were, being reestablished, mm-hmm actually delivers so much more than just, you know, your purchasing power as many Bitcoiners will attest. Like, and Harrison, you said about like the peace and and the stability you feel Mm -hmm. like those and the relationships you end up building with people and the way you value and the things that you get fulfillment and enjoyment out of, like a lot of that can change and that can be very material and can be rather rapid increases or influences in the quality of your life. You know, maybe your savings account, a nominal amount didn't grow by a tremendous amount, but you still something of tremendous value is starting to dawn on you just as a result of engaging yep. in this process. And the the flip mm-hmm. side of that is when, you know, in these places and times, the one we're in 1920s Germany, when that quote unquote contract, and perhaps that's not the right word to use, but I think you'll know what I mean. is like when mm-hmm. the premise of, hey, work and provide value and receive reward mm-hmm. Which you mm-hmm. and only you can avail the, of the fruits of. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have uh, an attitude of, of working and of contributing and of, of building. But when that's removed, you get that nihilism that we see is so prevalent today, you know, and, and, and the debauchery exactly. that was so prevalent in, in 1920s Germany. Because, it's like, well, what's the fucking point? Like, why would I yeah. do that? Like, it's not going to pay off. Right. So I don't care. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get my kicks now. I'm going to try to gratify mm-hmm. myself immediately. And again, like, I mean, that's on full display in, in, I think in the world today. And it was also on display in the mid to late twenties um, in Germany, yep. you know, I saw some interesting yep. photos, not that this is perfectly representative, but it just jogged my memory as I was preparing for this. Like you could see um, like the, the jazz and um, uh, cabaret dancing thing was big in, in mid to, to late twenties, uh, Germany. And you could it's see that
1: up was... what's that? It was the twerking of the time.
0: Yeah, and you and you could see these like cabaret dancers. There was photos of them buying cocaine off drug dealers in the street. Now they looked <laughs> a little bit more civilized than you know their contemporaries today do. But still, like mm-hmm. you had that same behavior taking place, where it was a shrugging off of, it was a repudiation of of what was on offer. It was saying, yeah this is fucking bullshit and this is not working and Mm -hmm. everyone's lying and everyone's corrupt. And there's no, Mm -hmm. no one's keeping up their end of the bargain here. So I'm just going to get my kicks and fuck you. Mm -hmm. And the last Mm -hmm. thing I'll mention about that is what's interesting too, that I thought was, uh, and I'll I'll use kind of a funny corollary today, but one of the things that sprung up simultaneous to that, uh, like kind of aura of debauchery was, uh, mm. this is a quote from the book, in 1927, outbursts of physical exercise attempted to become strong, uh, of people attempting to become strong and beautiful, um, occurred simultaneous to this debauchery, mm. right? Mm. And I, I see that as a co- like a certain cohort or a certain demographic of that time saying, we we need to counterbalance this disorder, mm. this chaos that we're seeing. And the way mm-hmm. we do that is we become strong and stable yep. and, you know, more capable of confronting this disorder and chaos. And yeah. I, again, I, I think there's corollaries today where a certain mm-hmm. group of people and perhaps Bitcoin Bitcoiners uh, are among them. we saying like, there's, there's a lot of chaos and tradition has been, you know, all of our traditions and principles and norms have been just, eliminated in favor of this Mm -hmm. you know crazy woke ideologies and all sorts of other problems i need to i need to take some of it back right i need to make my mind Mm -hmm. and my body and my immediate circumstance as strong as possible and the image that's entering my mind uh for this example is like a couple days ago i saw that tucker carlson he's doing these like original documentaries now and one of them was Mm -hmm. like this uh strong men series, right? Where he's got like guys are working out and wrestling and slonking raw eggs and tanning their balls and stuff like that. And like, (laughs) it it, it seems absurd, but number one, like most of that shit I'm down with. And number two, like you can, (laughs) you can can see how that seemingly extreme sort of set of behaviors, maybe it's, it's fairly, I can see it as a fairly rational response to the complete degradation Mm -hmm. and disorder that they're facing out in the world. And so creating more order within oneself is a natural Mm -hmm. response to seeing disorder Mm -hmm. out in the world, at least for a certain cohort of people, the other cohort engage in the disorder and allow it to make, make themselves disorderly and and debauch. But I think you're always going to have those two responses. And I found it so interesting that you could see it in
3: 1920s Germany. And I think we have a lot of Mm -hmm. parallels today. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Hey guys, I'm sorry. I, I just gotta let you know, I got. I'm gonna have to get going in like uh, about two minutes. I gotta go at five sure.
0: fifteen. I think we're we yeah. can we can shut it down. My last comment. I'll end on a slightly positive note, although <laughs> I think there's a lot of a lot of good stuff here. Um, one of the things I found interesting. I mentioned it a little a few a little while back in the conversation, was just that from the end of the war to like 1924, where they had that was the peak of the hyperinflation. Like that was in a super extreme circumstance, and then two, three years later, it mm-hmm. was basically like things were on the up and up. Like there was a lot mm-hmm. of weird cultural stuff, but mo- like the middle class had recovered and most people were more stable. And I bring that up only to say, like, I think we all agree that there's kind of a storm on the horizon because now mm-hmm. this Fiat experiment is global and it's not just isolated. And it's been, been brought to a a level that you know, perhaps there is no precedent for just how extreme it's become, and so the unwind is is probably going to be a sight to behold as well. But now that mm-hmm. we have, you know, this tool in Bitcoin to respond to it and to protect ourselves from and to feed into as a parallel system, I'm I'm optimistic that as bad as it might be, I think we might be able to come out of it rather quickly. You know, because right. there's been times mm-hmm. in the past where They came out of it quickly and they had nowhere near the type of tool that we now have at our disposal and so you know that's that's my last optimistic comment and i'll throw it over to you guys for a final word before we shut it down love that man
3: well um Oh, sorry. No. Listen, I just wanted to thank you, uh, John. This is super cool to talk to, uh, talk to Bitcoiners, and to <clears throat> specifically to touch on this book, right? And to to revisit this book that I think um, uh, we've mentioned it a bunch of times here. It's a little bit dry, but I would say it's uh, to me it was a it was it was it wasn't that dry. You know what I mean? It's, it's I think it's very much worth uh, Bitcoiners' time uh, or anybody's time uh, to revisit this period in Weimar Germany, because uh, again, as we kind of said at the very beginning, a lot of times it's it's uh, it's easy to kind of read something like and be like, oh my god, thank God that's never going to happen again. Um, but yet we have to be really eyes wide open because um, I think in a lot of ways what, what's what's bound to happen might be even worse, considering the global interconnectivity you know that we experience today. So thanks very much for pulling us together and uh, and for uh, uh, going over this book.
1: Yeah, and, and for me, I think it's it's interesting to try to think about you know someone that's may, maybe kind of newer to this space and like what's what's this a solution or solution? What can people do to to get out of it. and i think about somebody like young in their career you know 25 years old and uh you know what can they do they see the writing on the wall they agree with us and but they don't they haven't made that much income or maybe they're even 22 or 21 and i think about that it's interesting because i know michael saylor is, is really doing the speculative attack which is you're taking you're now leveraging an asset which used to be a liability which is debt so in any inflating environment you know if if if, um if the dollar or a currency is inflating by 10 or 20 percent you can take a loan out for three percent you can take that and buy that strong asset and so you know michael saylor is doing that with bitcoin and then the other interesting thing is what people a lot of people are are doing is doing that with real estate and they don't even know they're doing it you know taking out a large mortgage putting as little percent down as they can taking out a large loan and then that debt is um, being inflated away over time. And the value of the house is going up as well as the rents are increasing. So the cash flows are going up. And I think that's like something that seems actionable and a learning that's reinforced by this book and the last 70 years of, of asset appreciation. Um, and the only difference with like not putting that into Bitcoin which you can do. I know there's people that do take loans out and then put that into the Bitcoin, especially thinking about it for someone that's 25 years old, because let's say they make $100,000 a year, they, um, they're they going to make $2 million over a 20-year 20, 20 year career. But if that money is being inflated away, their future cash flows are being diminished. And Michael Saylor recognizes that. And I think that's something that needs to be put in the forefront because you know, as Michael Saylor says, the um, you know you're on a treadmill. If if your inflation continues to increase by 10 or 20 percent, and you're not getting a 10 and 20 percent raise, you're you're moving backwards in terms of purchasing power. And until somebody realizes that and it clicks for them, then they don't un- understand that they need to subtract the inflation rate by the interest rate or their salary each year because their purchasing power is becoming worth less, not the goods, not the cost of goods increasing necessarily, but the the thing that they're incoming, their cash flows of their job for the next 10 years is diminishing. And I just kind of wanted to end on that note, because I like to make it actionable for people uh, to, to kind of do something. So that's, that's my takeaway. And, and hopefully that gives some people some clarity.
0: Yeah, definitely something to explore, lots of ways to play these crazy financial times that we're in, but I will just finish with, start with Stay Humble, Stack Sats. Gentlemen, thank you very much and uh, look forward to chatting again soon.
1: Okay. Thanks again, and John. Bye. Bye.